All right, we're in uh, 1 Peter, chapter 2, and working our way slowly through this. Um, I want to begin again with verse 11, although we covered some of that as we then transition into verse 13. If you're following in your uh, in the, the, the little notes I gave you at page 6, and I want to address some things I put here on the board, uh, or the sheet, or whatever you call it. Behold, let me start again with verse 11 and just read it. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, last week, we spent a fair amount of time on verse 11, and I want to remind you again, I read from the ESV translation, but they translate those two terms, sojourners and exile. And Peter, this isn't the first time he's talked like this, but how do we view ourselves in the midst of this fallen, broken world? We're sojourners, we're exiles, we're passing through. Our true home is heaven. My father is home. That's what he kept saying to me those last months of his life. I just want to go home. I just want to go home. He's home. And and I, I say that because believers, um, and that is hard for us, but I think as we get older, it becomes a little more of a reality. Believers are to have the perspective, this isn't our home. To be with Christ in heaven is, and then when he recreates the new heaven and the new earth, that's our eternal uh, home, so to speak. And plus, remember, he's writing to the exiles, he's writing to those scattered abroad, but he says something that is very consistent, uh, very consistent with what the Apostle Paul says in his letters. An action plan, a strategy, a strategy for holiness. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. And so this is something the Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians 5 and several other parts of his 13 letters. We are in a war. We're in a battle. And that battle is, and he only chooses one of the three. We have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's only using, he's only citing one of those enemies here. But is it, it's it, you're in a war, you're in a battle for the control of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's saying it is important for you because the word or the, the verb abstain is not a suggestion. It's a command. So part of that strategy is I abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's, you know, we don't talk like that very often in 2017, but what does he mean? I am learning something in my walk with the Lord. And this is Peter speaking, but it's actually myself speaking as well. I know what the old habits and patterns of my life were. I know what got me into a lot of difficulty by 1972 when I came to faith in Christ. And I've learned to abstain from those things. Now, it didn't happen overnight, but I've learned that. Part of the strategy in my life has been avoid those things that get me into trouble. And some of the things that I avoid and I stay away from may not be the same thing Tom stays away from. Or his strategy in its very specific, I could say that of every one of you, he's on my right side. But everyone, it's just, what, what are the triggers in your life that caused this struggle to intensify between the flesh and, 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 and that which is, is pleasing to the Lord. You have, you have to learn. You know yourself, but you start to understand, here are the things that I must strategize to deal with and avoid as part of my strategy. I tell the men in my church, you must have a strategy for holiness. And that means you must individualize. I mean, there are, there are general basic things that we all, you know, we learn intuitively see in God's word. But sometimes there are just very specific things that to Fred might be very innocuous and meaningless, but to me can be intense. And I just learn. And so some of the choices I make will be different than 
well, there are two Freds to my right, but the two Freds or whatever, they're going to be different in that sense. But it's not saying he's right and I'm wrong. It's just saying they're both thinking. They're both thinking and applying wisely the, the, the strategy that they've developed their holiness. Woody. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to say it's kind of like uh, abstaining uh, from temptations. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, you know what, you know how you're going to get in trouble if you do exactly. this. Exactly. Turn your head. You don't do that. You know? Exactly. And uh, and I was questioning my own faith because I was because I was still being tempted. Mm. And uh, but I was not. But I was. But I was abstaining. You yeah. know what I mean? Yep. And, uh, yep. and I, I thought there was something wrong with my mm. with my Christianity. Uh, sure. If I'm tempted, but yep. I'm, 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 I'm getting it. I'm finding out that we're all tempted. Yes, exactly. Even Jesus was yeah. tempted. That's the whole point, like in Matthew 4, for example. But as it says in Hebrews 2 and 4, in all ways he was like us, tempted, but without sin. Say that again. In all ways, Jesus was tempted like us, but yet without sin. Yes. He never chose to give in to that sin. And that's our struggle. But it, it, you're right. You, you start to learn that. That I am being tempted is not the struggle. It's what do I do with that temptation? Because he's using, he, Peter, here in this, that one of those sources of temptation is the flesh, the world, the devil, the other two. And it's what do we do with that? Because by definition, temptation is an enticement to do that which is evil. Being enticed is not the sin. It's what you do with it. And that, again, it's, that's part of what, if I can elaborate on this just a little bit longer, Part of that strategy for holiness is you become very clear what leads me to do this. Usually begins as a thought, leads to a desire, and becomes an action. So it's my thought life that's really important. It's, it's just that's basic. It's my thought life. And we have talked about that before, but it's what am I allowing into my mind? What, what, what am I exposing my mind to? What am I exposing my heart to? And it, it's that, and that's why it is so important, and that's, I think, one of the reasons you come to this Bible class, that I want to fill my mind with the things of the Lord. I want the Lord's perspective on things. I, I, want, I, want, I want His vantage point on things. And when you have that, over time, that's the matter of sanctification, we begin, we begin to choose wisely and strategize. I mean, that, that's why, again, Peter is not using his suggestion. That is a command. Abstain from the passion of the flesh. And so it's, it, it's, it's clear. Your, your strategy for holiness is not passive. It's active. Would you say the author of this book was also tempted in that way? Oh, heaven, Jeff. And he blew it a lot. Remember, this is Peter. <laughs> he blew it a lot. <laughs> but, you know, it, I just it's so wonderful how God keeps bringing Peter back. You know, as you know from that, the, 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 when Peter denied Jesus, well, three times, then after the resurrection, Jesus meets him on the shore of Galilee and Three times said, Peter, do you love me? You know, and, and he just renews him there. And God's always, God never gives up on us. I always would tell my student, God never gives up on you. Part of my role is to stretch you to your limits, but he never gives up on you. And we want you to be successful. Nobody wants that more than God. So that's the negative, abstain. But then the positive, verse 12, this is the positive part of the strategy, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, the term Gentiles can mean an ethnic label or meaning, but it also can mean in the New Testament sense those who are outside the covenant, those who are not believers. So how do we act in front of believers? Well, I want to walk around with a shotgun and shoot them. Now, that's a joke. Don't think I'm saying that. But, you know, that's not what—no, no. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And that term, the term that's translated honorable there is, um, 
we don't talk like that a lot unless you're in the military, you, you know, you, like the Marines. You, you talk about honor. But in general, general culture, we don't use the word honorable very often. So what does it mean, conduct yourselves in an honorable way? What might be some synonyms for honorable? That was not rhetorical, by the way. That was honesty, this is class, but just honesty, integrity. integrity. I'm hearing it from a couple of you. Yeah, those kinds of words. In other words, what we say should be matched by what we do. But let's put it another way: the talk that we talk should be matched by the walk that we walk. I studied under a man. He was Howard Hendricks. He was so humorously confrontational. But he used to say to us, men, if you're not serious about walking with Christ, please hide it. Don't tell anybody you're a Christian. <laughs> Just pretend you're not a Christian. And he was saying that in a funny, humorous way to challenge us that it really does matter how we live our lives. Because how we live our lives is what people are seeing. They will hear us talk. But how we live is often more powerful than what we say. Your because you Christian, can, your strongest Christian witness yeah. is how you act. Yeah, it, it really is. And to be honorable is to walk with God. Yeah, in dependence on him, in obedience, lovingly with him. Now, I don't agree with all, all of his theology by any stretch, but Francis of Assisi in the early 1100s used to say, uh, in all ways preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. I mean, you have to think about that. But I mean, I mean, obviously, the gospel, you've got to speak it and you have to talk about it. But what he's saying is, what Francis was saying, is in a sense the same thing Peter's saying here. Our conduct, our conduct should match our words. Honorable, with integrity, and all of those words that you said. And, and, and this, now please notice this is a result clause, an intended result, so that, when they speak against you as evildoers, they rail against you. They accuse you, speak against you. They may, see the, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, the intended result is they accuse, they rail, they slander, but you respond with good deeds. And the intended result is God will get the glory on the day of visitation. That's an unusual phrase. That's an unusual. You see it in the prophets of the Old Testament. But it's an unusual phrase in the New Testament. Most expositors, and I tend to agree with that, understand that to being referring to the end time judgment when the Lord returns and people give an account of how they lived their lives. <coughs> And, of course, for you and me, we do not need to fear the judgment of God because that's Christ has taken that judgment. We, 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 we are able to appropriate that by faith. But it's a great white throne judgment of unbelievers. And it's just, it's one of those many, many, many threads of evidence that God uses us as his children by faith in his Son in what we say and what we do as part of his witness. So that no one is ever going to stand before God and say, I never knew about you. I never knew what you stood for. And God will present the evidence. Yes. Jim Eckman shared the gospel with you on this date. Would he evidence before you a transformed life and you saw the change and you, you denied and refused to understand and accept why Woody's a different man? I'm using just examples. So Peter's, Peter's really giving a very, very powerful motivation in challenging these first century believers. It matters how you live your life. It matters how you live your life. And the eternal legacy, and, and that's, that's part of what I, I think all of us have to deal with, but I'm kind of wrestling with that a little bit because of what's happened at the school I led. The eternal legacy is not the building. Those buildings are going to go away anyway. It's the lives that have been impacted. I've had thousands and thousands of students in my years. 
And as one of my dear, dear friends wrote me this morning, he said, Jim, don't forget the buildings you built are not what's really important. They're going to be demolished anyway. It's the lives that have been impacted through your ministry. So, Amen. And that's, that's, it was encouraging for me to hear that. He's a very dear friend of mine in Orlando. And it was just a, a reminder of what Peter is saying here. What really matters is how we live our lives. Well, are you all challenged by that? I mean, I, I, I'm challenged by it because I need to be challenged by it at this point. But it's just a very significant reminder that we need to have, first, a strategy for holiness, and two, a clarity of understanding of why it matters how we live our lives. It has eternal significance. It's really important. Yeah, Jim. I didn't see you were here. Good to see you. You're hiding behind Fred. <laughs> so is he saying here clearly that, um, that our behavior, how we conduct our lives, can be very influential in moving someone who's not a believer, into faith. Yes, I, I do believe that. That's a clear inference of what he's saying. Yes, absolutely. Now, I've seen that so often in marriages mm. where the wife, for example, is mm. a son of a believer and the husband has no interest in it. Absolutely. And over time, you see an amazing transition mm-hmm. just by the conduct of it. That's right. Absolutely. And that, that little phrase you used, over time, that's, that's usually... That's usually what happens. It's over time when a spouse that's an unbeliever or friend or neighbor or child or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's something um, all my life I've, I've wrestled with this, this whole proposition. It matters how I respond to everything. Not just what I teach and what I preach and all that kind of stuff, but it's, it matters how I respond to everything. As my wife always would sell me, honey, don't forget, four eyes are watching you. <laughs> and she meant two that belong to Jonathan two and two belong to Joanna, our children. And, uh, it, you know, you look back on that, and when my wife would always remind me of that. And that, that was so important, because that's one of the things that kids, I got a text from Joanna this morning about Grace and all that. Just what she says in that text, it just reminds me it really mattered how I lived my life before my kids. You know, they saw me fall, they saw me make mistakes, but they saw that <coughs> desire to be consistent in, in how I live my life. They're the kind of things, that's, that's what lasts. Buildings don't last, you know, ultimately. Anyway, so this is a great motivator. It's, 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 a, it's a negative, abstain, but a positive, honorable, because people are watching, and you are a witness. Verbally, non-verbally, we're a witness, and that's so important for us to remember. Can I just share something? Um, Absolutely. Um, uh, our daughter, our youngest daughter, uh, picked up a, a second master's degree in <coughs> counseling at Grace. Uh, she was called by a counseling center that's fairly large in the Twin Cities. They said, we are looking for a Christian to add to our staff. Would you consider taking that position? And she took that position, and she's been in it now for a little over a year. And she may be perhaps the only Christian in that organization that also embraces gay rights and lesbians. And um, that, that counseling qualification came from Grace University mm. and she's using that as a part of this yeah. what we're talking yeah, about yeah it's good it's good to hear that part of the legacy good. now again if you're following in the a little outline on page 6 or just looking at the text what Peter does now is he helps Well, let me put it, he gives an illustration of what does an honorable life look like. I'm I'm keying in from the word that's in verse 12. He is not about to give an an exhaustive description of an honorable life. He chooses one aspect of an honorable life, a life of submission. And he puts it in an ethical context. 
And I say ethical because he speaks of it in terms of a duty or an obligation that we owe to authority. Now, what I did up here was, it's been a long time since we were in Genesis, but I want to remind you of something because Genesis is such a foundational book. But you remember at the beginning of the book of Genesis in chapter 1, God creates and he declares it's good. Remember that? Every day, the six days, he creates something. He says it's good. Now, I don't know if you remember that, but we were talking about that. That Hebrew term good, when you really dig into and examine it, it's saying that it's not just, that's really good, that's nice. No, 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 it's far deeper than that. Good means that which is conducive to order and life. In other words, God creates a world and he denominates it as good because what he has done is conducive to order because God is not a God of disorder and chaos and confusion. Those terms characterize Satan. Satan is the rebel who is into disorder, chaos, and confusion. God isn't. God is into order, stability, and clarity. And that which is conducive to life. So, I mean, right now, both of those apply, but I want to key in on this, because even though this world is fallen and broken and in rebellion against the Lord, it's still important for you and me as believers to understand that one of God's core values is order and stability. So what Peter is saying is an honorable life means that you will submit to authority. And so right out of the chute in verse 13, what does he say? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And you say, hold it, wait a minute, time out. I don't want to do that. The guy that's running our country isn't in my political party, and I don't want to do that. I'm making that up. You don't have any idea what I'm talking about. I know that. But, you know, or, I mean, just put any qualifier in there. And what Peter is saying is an honorable life is a life that understands order and stability. And God has us set up his world in such a way that there are authorities, and you are to submit to that authority. Because see how he said it, for the Lord's sake. It's, it's mimicking and buying into and adopting a core value of your God, of your Lord, of your Master, of your Savior. That order is better than disorder, and stability is better than chaos. Now, when Jesus comes back and sets up the kingdom, etc., do you think there's going to be chaos and disorder and instability and dysfunction? Uh-uh. That is not what we're going to see. And so it's just Peter is saying, now, let me go down a bunny trail real quick, and I want to come back to the main point of his teaching. But one of the, one of the clear teachings of the Bible, Old and New Testament, is that we obey authority until it's a sin to obey authority. Now, some of you are looking at me, you're in a headlight look. But that we obey authority until it's a sin to obey authority. So you have, well, let's just choose one example. You have Daniel and the three Hebrew guys with him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are their Babylonian names, remember them? And uh, the head of Herod's household says, uh, we want you to eat this, we want you to do this. And, and, and Daniel comes back and says, no, look, we can't do that. We, we, we can't do this, what, what, what you are asking us to do in the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, let me suggest that we will eat this diet of kosher food and we'll do this. But if, if you want us to be good, obedient servants in the, the household and court of Nebuchadnezzar, let's consider that's the goal. We agree with that. But we're going to see if what our diet, which is kosher, gets the same point. And he says, OK, we'll try it for 10 days. Or you have Peter and John in Jerusalem. Sanhedrin says to them, do not preach Jesus as the Messiah. And what do Peter and John do? Correct. 
They go out and preach Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Where do they end up? They end up in jail. And the Sanhedrin says, didn't we tell you to don't preach it? Yes, but we obey God, not man. Jesus commissioned us before we went back to the Father to proclaim the message. So it, this is one of the issues that was a part of Nazi Germany. You know, should German soldiers have obeyed the order to exterminate Jews? And I don't know if you remember the court in Nuremberg and all that, reached a conclusion. You do not have to obey an order like that. There are many people who didn't obey it. I mean, you just throughout history, it's just all those examples. They're just the most extreme. So that's a principle that's in the Bible, and that creates issues that are, are some tension for us. But the general pattern is be subject, could translate, be in submission for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he uses an example. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Now, Peter's writing this letter. It's in the 60s. Who's the Caesar? The Greek word is the basuleos. Who's the basuleos? It's Nero. I don't know if you know anything about Nero. He doesn't have a real good reputation in history, and he didn't deserve a good reputation in history. So Peter is saying, even if it's Caesar, or a governor, difficult word to translate, verse 14, or to governors as sent by him. Well, since Judea was a Roman province, the governor would have been the one in Caesarea. When Jesus was still walking earth, it was Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the representative of Caesar in Judea. I'm just using it as examples that people would have thought of when Peter wrote it. Sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You see, from God's perspective, the state has two responsibilities. Promote justice and punish evil. So how does it promote justice? By affirming what people do who are good citizens, but by holding accountable those who are not. In the 21st century, we do that through the police force, through the district attorney's office, and all those kinds of things. All Peter is saying is government has the responsibility to promote justice and thwart evil. It is your responsibility as Christians to help in that process. You obey. You submit. You cooperate. You work. Even if the government has the head of the government, which is from a political party that you don't like. Now, I'm not going to go any further with that. It's just, I mean, as Christians, well, I'm going to obey him, because he's in my political party, I voted for him. But if this guy would have won, I'd no, uh, no way. Show no respect, no dignity. And I'm not sure that's exactly what Peter is saying here. So he's laying down a marker which had to be difficult in the first century. It's really difficult for many in the 21st century. If I don't like the ruler, I don't think I have to obey him. <clears throat> If I don't like the rule, I don't think I have to respect him or honor him. From what Peter's saying, I'm not sure that's the option we have. Because when he wrote this, he's talking about Nero. All right, I, you seem to be with me or that. Yeah. There are, Jim. I mean, obviously, this has implications for governmental authority, but most of us have spent time in the corporate work world, too, where the same principle, I think, has application, and sometimes it comes with a cost. That's going to come up in, in verse 18, but you're right, it does come with a cost in, in, in the workplace, and that cost can be loss of a job or demotion or whatever. No, no, you're right. Jim, 
in all these kinds of situations where there is authority and our responsibilities to submit and obey, you obey until it's a sin to obey. In often that kind of a situation, there's a cost to doing that. To living an honorable life can also be costly because of the master whom we serve, meaning Jesus whom we serve. So, I mean, I'm, I'm more elaborating on what your comment was, which is a correct comment. Is that in tune with what you were saying? I mean, that, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's just what Peter is doing is he's, he's leveraging now what he said in verse 12. That's what he's leveraging. He's stepping off of that. An honorable life, what does it look like? An honorable life is submission to institutions that God's created. God created the state. God created the family. God God created those things. You can cite every one of those in Scripture when when God created them. So our response is, I will submit to that government. I will submit to that authority. I will submit to my boss. I'll submit to whatever it is, a parent, a child. And you see... Now, I might be wrong, but typically, human beings don't want to do that. And more so in the 21st century, where autonomy is such a core value. I'm, I'm my own. I don't submit to authority. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm, you know, I, I, I live my life the way I want. And how dare you in any way tell me that I shouldn't be doing this? And I work at home. I don't work in a corporate office. I can do everything at my computer. I, these are what people have told me. And so I don't, I make my own rules. I have no authority in my life. And that, of course, is an absolutely absurd principle. Because regardless of who you are, you live under authority. You don't have the freedom to go out and drive 100 miles an hour. I mean, if you do, you pay for the consequences. You might get arrested, or you'll have a terrible accident, or you kill somebody, or you'll kill yourself. I'm using it as a ridiculous example. We live under authority, regardless of whether we recognize it or not. So, please note that again, that part of, part of our responsibility is to understand why God has the institution of the state to punish evil, to affirm good, promote justice, thwart evil. And regardless of the form of government, that's their responsibility before God. And you as a believer, citizen of Christ's kingdom, want to affirm that. Help the state to promote justice. Help the state to punish evil by being the kind of citizen that honors that. In 107 AD, Justin Martyr, whom I'm sure you never heard of, an early apologist of the church, wrote a letter to the Senate of Rome and wrote a letter to the Emperor of Rome. It's there, both of them were called an apology, meaning a defense. And the thesis of both his little letters, little books like, were don't persecute Christians. Christians are good citizens. That was his thesis. And Justin quoted from the New Testament. He said, you see, we are taught by our Savior to be good citizens. We're taught by our Savior in Romans 13. All government is established by God. That's what Paul says in verse 1. He quoted this verse from Peter. Christians submit to authority because God created the authority and wants them to be good citizens. So don't persecute us. We're good citizens. Did the Roman Senate and the Roman Emperor follow that? <laughs> As you know, he, they didn't. They ended up increasing and becoming more and more ruthless for Christians. Well, you know, to, to whom much is given, much is required. And if that's clear, then there will perhaps be maybe a higher degree of responsibility Yes. At the day of judgment, because it was clear. Yes. The instruction. Yes, very clear. 
Very clear. What's the first phrase in verse 15? Well, this is the will of God. I, if there's one question I have been asked the most in my life as a, as a, a professor and leader in the Christian higher education is, what's God's will for my life? Now, when a student who's you know, 22 comes to you and asks that question, usually what does it mean? Well, should I marry this girl? Because I don't spend time with women. I don't think that's why. So should I marry this girl? Is that God's will for my life? Or um, I have two offers when I graduate. Which one's God's will for my life? I always, when I would respond to the students, that ask those kind of, I'd always take them to a couple of verses in Scripture that have nothing to do with those kinds of things. And I always say it this way. Listen, 90%, 96% of God's will for your life is already revealed. It's in the book. And cite a verse like this, for this is the will of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, this is the will of God that you be sanctified. It's over and over and over and over. God's will is very clear. So here's one of those. It's clear. It's it's with great clarity. The will of God is have a submissive spirit to authority. Now you go to other parts of God's word, it's clear why. Because God created this authority. God has a purpose for this authority. So when you are in submission to authority, you are in conformity with what God desires. So, I mean, Peter's just being pretty categorical here, and it's uncomfortable. And for a millennial in 2017 who values autonomy, they look at a verse and say, well, I'm not obeying this. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Let's explore that a little bit. What in the world does he mean by that? That by doing good, and remember, he's talked a little bit about what doing good looks like. Honorable life, life of submission to authority. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What does he mean by that? Put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So let's let's unpack that. Let's let's explore that a little bit. Um, so I mean that wasn't rhetorical. That was this is called class participation. You know, but what do you think? I mean that's a, it's a, it's not troubling, but it's maybe not as clear. What does he mean? Okay, by doing good, the will of God by doing good. What he's been talking about being honorable, submitting to institutions, God created, etc. But by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. An image that comes to mind is a man in Tiananmen Square with a jack, you know, standing in front of the oh, yes, I didn't think about it's, that. It's not yeah. Christian, but it's... Yeah, he was, he was standing for something, and in his silence, that was a powerful symbolic message. Yeah. Well, Put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How about the uh, case where um, the harlot was brought and cast before the, the men... Uh, and they were going to stone her, and Jesus said, "He who is without sin cast the first, first stone, mm. and the oldest <laughs> left first, mm. and then everyone left, and she mm. was there alone." It's a good illustration. The, the ignorance is usually chaotic, and if you live with, with order, then the, the chaos will become worse apparent mm. and, and should then be silenced mm. over time. Mm. That's good. That's, that's good. Um, let's unpack it. Everything what, what's been shared is, is, is good and spot on. Let's, let's start at the end of the verse and work our way back. <coughs> Foolish people. Now, foolish people, from the Bible's perspective, are those who reject God, reject his message, reject his son. They say they're wise, but in reality, they're fools. So foolish people are those 
who are living a life or, or rebelling against or consciously or unconsciously refusing to do that which is obviously wise, and the Bible says they're foolish. So he says the ignorance of foolish people. What are they ignorant of? these key core values of our God. And that ignorance is not an ignorance of innocence. It's a willful, deliberate, intentional ignorance. Do you understand that I'm making a distinction? Do you understand that? I mean, a three-year-old child is ignorant because the child's innocent, doesn't, innocent in a sense, doesn't completely understand the moral, ethical law of God, and so on. All they do is just respond to what mommy and daddy says. If I do this, I'm going to be punished. If I do this, they're going to give me a piece of candy. They don't have an ethical understanding of things. They get older, they will. But this is not an ignorance like the ignorance of a child. This is a willful, intentional, deliberate ignorance. A deliberate ignorance of foolish people who chastise and mock and make fun of you and me who are serious. And Peter's saying something very powerful. A consistent life lived in honoring the Lord silences foolishness. Maybe not right away. Maybe not in the first year. But as a couple of you have said, over time, ignorance is silenced. Because what you see is the results of a foolish life versus a wise life. That's what Solomon is saying in the book of Ecclesiastes. Why should I be wise? I don't know, we studied that a couple of years ago. And I don't know if you remember, a couple of times you asked the question, why should I be wise? Why should I live like this as a wise person? Peter's giving us an answer. It becomes very evident over time whether it's better to be wise or a fool. And the fool is the person who willfully, intentionally, deliberately rejects clarity of what God wants and chooses disorder rather than order, chooses chaos rather than stability, chooses dysfunction rather than healthy living. Over time, which one is silenced? There are so many examples in our culture we could use. <laughs> I mean, there's just dozens of examples you could use. But, you know, one, one of them, I, I've, often, I've often thought about this in these last couple of days. Hugh Hefner just died. I don't know if you noticed that. 91 years old. You know, I, I was astonished at some of the really positive things people said about him. I have absolutely no, no positively affirming things to say about him. He was a high-end smuggler and peddler of smut. Objectified women, helped to cultivate and leverage the sexual revolution that was going on and the feminist revolution to build a fortune based on nudity, based on dysfunction based on hurting lots of people. He spent $75,000 to buy a crypt right next to Marilyn Monroe, which presumably is where he's going to be bought, where he's going to be buried. To, his, to the last, presumably, as far as we know, the last day of his life, he promoted this autonomous, free-living, sexually liberated life of shack up with whomever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want. You know, if we're intellectually honest, we would say of that man, he was a fool. Right? Mm-hmm. Was he wise? Mm-hmm. No. I mean, what he was doing is he's building a whole empire on that which creates disorder, chaos, and dysfunction in people's lives. He ruined a lot of men. He ruined a lot of women. And I'm pretty certain if we could get a figure like I doubt we could get a figure like that, but... I bet we could see that he ruined an awful lot of marriages. 
because pornography, as one person one time said, is adultery of the heart. That's what it is. And it ruins a man or a woman. Women can become addicted to pornography too. And I'm saying all that because what Peter is saying here is we can apply it to people like like Hugh Hefner, and you take somebody like Hugh Hefner versus someone like, I'll, I'll choose it because they're fairly similar in age, someone like Billy Graham. Billy Graham's still living. I know he has Parkinson's, very sick, and he's in his 90s. But which one, which one really has a legacy of order, stability, and healthy relationships? Which one has that legacy? Billy Graham. Hugh Hefner or Billy Graham? Billy Graham. Yeah, Billy Graham. And if you're intellectually honest, you're silenced. Ignorant people who are foolish are silenced by a comparison like that. If they're honest. You know, obviously, not always honest. But I'm saying all that because Peter is just laying down a very, very, very powerful marker. How we live can silence the ignorance, the willful, deliberate ignorance of very foolish people. Right. Peter says... Foolish people, he doesn't say ignorant people. Yeah. These foolish people are exceedingly smart. He's talking about the Pharisees that know the, Could be. know the, all, all the scripture. He's talking about people who can work the system magnificently, but their talk is ignorant yeah. and it's chaotic. Yeah. And it's that ignorance of willful, deliberate ignorance. Yes. That's it. This is, I, I hope you're tracking with Peter here and what, what I'm trying to do as we use examples. This is very powerful stuff here. And before we leave, we're almost done, but look at the first part of verse 16. I love this. Live as people who are free. That sounds like somebody that wrote the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. This was written in the early 60s A.D., so, does he have in mind Declaration of Independence freedom? First Amendment freedom? Well, in a way, but no, he's really talking about live as people who are free from the bondage to sin. That's what he means. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, if the Son makes you free, S-O-N, meaning himself, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. You see, let's, let's turn this um, in a way that fits with how we're talking about this importance of institutions and authority. If you say freedom is to do whatever I want, there are no boundaries. Does that create order, stability, and health? Or is freedom responsible freedom? where I am freed from those things that put me in bondage that create dysfunction, disorder, and instability. But when I'm freed from that, I see a life of order, stability, and health. And I don't only mean physical health. I mean spiritual health, emotional health, all of that. And so Peter's saying, live as people who are free. Free from that, which produces disorder, chaos, and dysfunction. That's what he means. It's the same thing that Jesus said. As a matter of most expositors think what he's doing, he's really paraphrasing what Jesus said in John chapter 8. Live as people who are free. Free from the bondage to sin and everything that produces chaos and disorder and dysfunction in life. And I, I think you all agree when we come to faith in Christ and we begin to, to walk with him, we begin to learn what real freedom is. Before 1972, I lived in bondage. I didn't even know it. I didn't realize it. I wouldn't put it in that context. But now, the Lord has freed me from all that. And I'm free from that to now serve him. I'm free from the, the terrible chaos and disorder and hurt, dysfunction. To a life now where there's order and stability and health spiritually because of Jesus. There's no other explanation for that. There's no other explanation for that. 
That's what Peter's saying. Live as people who are free. There's a lot more I want to say about this verse, but uh, as the Filipinos speak of the God on our wrist, mm-hmm. I'd better listen to that God on our wrist well, because you guys have a schedule too. So I want to pick up, help me to remember that, I want to pick up with verse 16 and kind of in the middle there. We'll start again with that free, but then not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but great, great words here. A lot of, of, of tremendous counsel uh, for us as believers. We'll pick up there next week. So how about I pray? Father, we're very, very grateful this morning for Jesus. We're very, very grateful for the freedom that he brings, freedom from the bondage of sin, the freedom from the disorder and dysfunction, chaos of a life of rebellion, and the freedom that he brings when we begin our walk with you. and We begin our walk where we start to see honor in our lives, integrity in our lives that you begin to produce. You develop a strategy for holiness in our lives, a strategy for living honorably in our walk with you, and we start to see order and stability and health, spiritual health, emotional health. We we see that. And Lord, it's so obvious. We don't want to be ignorant, the ignorance of foolish people who deliberately and defiantly and intentionally Uh, disregard the clarity of your teaching and your wisdom. We want to be wise people who embrace Jesus, who are free and learning to live the rich, bountiful life that you've called us to live. And I just thank you for each man here and those who are traveling or whatever are not able to be with us in this uh, session this afternoon. We pray your blessing on them and the rest of us here. As we go our separate ways on what is a really lovely fall day. We thank you for that, for creating it, for sharing it with us. But in the rest of this day and the rest of this week, till we regather again, uh, Lord willing, next Wednesday, we want to be good representatives of you. We want to be honorable men whom uh, people will see just by our actions, just by how we live our lives, that there's something different. There's something about us that that can only be explained by Jesus and that gives us an opportunity to simply share that. So use us as your ambassadors, and we ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. See you next week. Thanks, Jim.